Dr. Coons, we left off last show, and, and I think this is kind of our, our concluding show for for the year here, uh, with some pretty dark kind of <laughs> words. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't dark Brandon, so. It, oh, there you go. Not dark mega. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, but it, but it was dark in terms of that President Biden as uh, as a caricature, as a as a puppet on a string, as a, um, a geriatric individual who probably would do better just staying in Delaware and resting, which he's doing plenty of that too. Um, but he keeps trying to pretend to be more that he is a, a, a harbinger of, of what's coming, meaning that it's clear the thing's not working and it's going to collapse. Uh, this is, this is by no means a show of power in any way. Uh, although I guess, you know, there's the whole 5d chess, like they're showing us how much they're in control by putting this guy who's not in control in control. So we know that yeah, they're really I, in control. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's good. You picked up on it. I I don't, I I just don't buy that. The whole, the idea that everything is orchestrated and everything is there. I mean, that is, that is such a perspective of people who live their lives in gaming chairs. Yes. Is that all of reality is orchestrated in the same way that the whole game is written out, no matter what you do. It feels like choice to you at 2.13 in the morning when you're on hour six of the game, but it was coded in there by whatever developer. That's not life. The only one who knows everything and orchestrates it all is God. And since you don't know his mind, nor does Joe Biden or the head of the DNC on every single thing that's going to happen, you are conceding way too much agency to human beings. You are you are believing some myth of omniscience or eternity that regimes commonly have, right? I mean, we've said before, kings are the people who generally present themselves as divine in the Bible because they're the ones subject to such a delusion. Most of us are much more aware of our own mortality. So that the idea that he's he's up there because you're being mocked and it's all some big ritual or something is such a it's such a perspective of people that play video games and watch movies all the time that's not how life operates yeah there's always a fly in the ointment in reality yeah. and you would not be able to pull this off with the yeah. the level that it is and so your your position ended with again a description of him as being uh likened to the uh the Russian leadership prior to the the collapse of the Soviet Union that is, yeah. you know, he's in charge because he was there and is the still breathing. And, right. and so right. we put him in the chair. It's kind of the way that Lutherans choose Sunday school teachers sometimes, you know, these days. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm glad you laughed at that. Someone out there is not laughing right now. Someone out there is very mad. No, someone uh, is someone is seething. <laughs> um, but it is the way we approach uh, a lot of things. But it, it's a sign that the thing itself is in collapse. And as you were as you were talking about uh, in the last episode, I my immediate thought was uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Blueprint for Armageddon description of the Kaiser prior to World War One, uh, a man who uh, really could have had more brain than he did. Yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and and as, as a result, uh, you know, did not head off what maybe could have been head off by better leadership. And and wouldn't you know, uh, we got a question from a viewer out there named Nathan, and and he kind of. Uh, foresaw this and, and wrote in and said, Dr. Kuhn, Special Fisk, I'm a longtime fan of the show. I recently heard a political commentator comparing the modern U.S. to Weimar Germany. So I wanted to ask Dr. Kuntz this question. Is the modern U.S. in a worse state, morally, economically, politically, than Weimar Germany? Yes, without a doubt. <laughs> it hurts. It hurts. It's true. I don't disagree at all, but it hurts. <laughs> so... One way to think about this is that in Weimar Germany, in order to participate in many forms of destruction of life or the the openings of what we would now call transgenderism or certainly gender reassignment surgery as a medical technique, you would you would have to travel maybe to Berlin, but certainly to one of the biggest cities, Hamburg, Munich. You, you couldn't even get those sorts of things in a mid-sized city. You wouldn't even know that they existed. So there's a show on Netflix that was fairly popular. I, I'm not sure if it's still in production. It's based on a series of German crime novels. The show is called Babylon Berlin. The novels have a couple different titles, but the significance there is that you have to go to Berlin in order to even see these things. So in order to see, you know, political violence enacted by communists, you have to go to Berlin or you'd have to go to Munich in 1919. You know, the, the street battles in which most of what will become the old fighters of the national socialist party, who will then be in charge of various things in the 1930s, all of those are predicated on big city life. In modern America, in order to be a communist or a witch or want to turn into a different gender or something, you just need an internet connection. So things that were unknown to the vast majority of people or would be utterly foreign or utterly strange to the vast majority of people in Weimar Germany, which is just a name for the regime, really, between 1919 roughly and 1933. Those things are pervasive among us. It's, it's like we all live in a down at the heels, very left wing neighborhood in Berlin in like 1927. We're all there. So on a moral level, or let's say a personal level, or as we referenced last week, a spiritual level, talking about things as spiritual problems, spiritual disciplines, spiritual difficulties, on that level, we're in a much worse place because the not just the temptations but the the strangenesses the forms of abuse to which particularly children are subject all of that is vastly more pervasive in modern america than it was then and that is that is enabled by the communications revolutions that have taken place since that time that enable some kid in you know grapevine texas to find out about things that his parents despise now he could get it from his public school teacher i guess but but he could also just get it from the internet well where does public school teacher get it and why is that individual as as far out as they are it's it's because uh, they're in the feed and, yeah. and the feed yeah. is uh, like unto an algorithm except it is an algorithm but it's it's not kind of randomly 
telling you what you want. Right. Um, right. It is and leading you. That's right. And and so like the the forms of disconnection or why is life not the same as it used to be ten years ago? That you let's say it's nineteen twenty three and you're in a small village in Germany. Why is life not the well? You just went through an enormous war in which forty percent of the men in your village were killed. And another 20% didn't come back. They drifted off to parts unknown. So your village is completely different and, and life has taken a completely different shape. And so those those kinds of change are easily explicable in terms of a war that was a burnt offering of most of Europe and parts of the rest of the world. That didn't happen to us 10 years ago. I mean, in 2012, like America wasn't, we were in two wars, but it wasn't most of our manhood that was killed off. So we're we're in a worse place morally. Economically, that's hard to say. Germany, in a way, did not go through the same version of the 1930s that we did because they never recovered in the 1920s the way we did. And then their recovery, their economic recovery in the 1930s began earlier than ours did. So we're just on a different timeline in that regard. It's very hard to compare them because we're just we're just in very different places. Politically, we are not in the same place. And so if you want to say worse, I guess you could say that if you want to say better, you could say that because as opposed to the nature of you know spiritual attacks upon the average human being we're much worse because of communications changes politically are we we're are we in a similar place yes is that similar place going anywhere that it would be an identical place i don't think so partly because we just have very different political traditions but also because our options are not the options of a European country or even a South American country because Anglo countries historically have not needed to resort to forms of extremism to solve political problems. So we have not had live options such as street fighting communists, open fascists, or even fascists, sub rosa, we have had options involving taxation structures, maybe class conflict, if you want to. Certainly, British politics is shaped that way historically. Ours was to, to a large degree with Democrats and Republicans, although part of that was ethnic conflict, but that that was never violent. That was never about are women, do they exist or what are they or how do you become one? So the nature of the conflicts that we are either in or are headed into politically are unforeseen for our own political traditions. Their precedents, as we mentioned last week, res resemble situations like Reconstruction where the parties break down along completely different visions of what life is going to be on a daily basis. Because we're headed back there, we may be headed for things that resemble Weimar Germany's levels of political conflict. But it's it's hard to match them one to one because we don't have the same political traditions and we don't have the same really ways of handling things so just give you a concrete example in weimar germany 
I can say things in the public square, largely through newsprint, that would get me banned from Telegram, let alone Twitter, today, not just pre-Musk Twitter. So if that's the case, you know, free speech is generally reserved from ancient times for citizens, then people that cannot freely speak what they think will react in ways that are would actually be diff, very different, unprecedented, because unprecedentedly suppressed than Weimar Germany. I mean, Weimar Germany, as far as what you could say in public, was much freer than we are. So that, and, and then that's not, to, not even to speak of like the freedom of thought, not just of speech, but of thought, what you could get funded, what you could say as an intellectual, et cetera. They were much freer than we are. So it's, it's hard to compare because I think our minds are just much more cramped than theirs were. I, I can see that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, Weimar Germany would have been far more homogenous as a as a people group, right? Oh like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. the reason that Adolf is is able to unite them is because he's I mean he's not trying to unite the Democrats and the Republicans or one against the other, like half the country against half the country. Uh, he has a massive group that all together is uh, able to be directed at an outward, although somewhat inward, enemy, um, and so he's able to unify them. And yeah, I don't see anything doing that uh that would make suddenly you know your your wokest of woke and your basis to base be like oh we got a common enemy we got to get i don't care what you're doing we're gonna fight against this um that ain't happening i mean alien invasion maybe maybe even then i think we still bite at each other and so to, to well, try it to make would a be speciesist not to welcome them. Yes, so. correct. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so, so to try to make a comparison to that history and ours, you know, yeah. wherein then what's the, what is the concern about? Oh, we're like Weimar Germany is like oh, it's going to give rise to another Hitler. Um, not no civil no. war. We're we're on the brink of civil war, whether it's a physical civil war or not. Like you said last episode, it, it may be yeah. a meme, it may be a future thing, but but we're already in the fifth generation psyop. On this, and uh, it, it, we just have to see that as what it is. Uh, that's the breakdown, um, not some sort of uh, s sudden turn into a military. We already are a military-industrial complex, right? Yeah, so, right. I mean, what is the point of that question? I mean, it's, I don't think it's a bad question. I'm glad you answered it. I've had the thought before. There's definitely, when you look at the in, the inflationary issue, the economic issue, I I, I see similarities there, but. Um, what is what is the point of that kind of a question? Right? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to find a roadmap? Is that what we're after? I, yeah, I think we're trying to find a roadmap. And I certainly understand that. And we draw parallels all the time on the show. One of the difficulties there is that our, our roadmap has had for for our country, particularly, does not have a precedent. There, there is no there is no formerly Anglo-Protestant dominated Latin American country, for example, because that would be that that in many ways is socially similar to us in that it has a ethnically and racially diverse population with divergent political goals in many cases that then get organized into, you know, two major parties. I mean, 
I, I generally find that our politics resemble Brazil's more than they used to, right? So Brazil's 1980s was not at all our 1980s. Our 1980s was a lot like Britain's or Germany's, West Germany's. That is increasingly less the case or where we resemble them. It is partly because, you know, Britain has a substantial and in the case of London, Birmingham and, and Manchester, non-white majorities in their major cities. So they resemble us more than they used to. Those divergences, not to speak of our military industrial complex, which has no parallel ever anywhere, means that roadmaps are hard to come by for what we're doing. So we mentioned Ron DeSantis in the last episode. DeSantis, DeSantis is interesting and Florida is interesting precisely because it's almost living in something like a little bit of a future in a way that places to which it is sometimes compared, such as Texas, are not because it's living. I mean, the Republican Party of Florida operates smoothly in two languages. That's never really happened before in the United States. Yes, there has always been voter outreach in lots of languages, especially in major cities. But to operate bilingually smoothly is a new thing. And it it positions, lots of things are positioned within their political spectrum if you follow local media rather than following national coverage of DeSantis. They're positioned within frames that are built by Caribbean problems like open communism in Cuba or destructive socialism in Venezuela. They're not built within frames that are like being a Republican is about cutting taxes, you know, or, or the, you know, a certain very Anglo libertarianism, you know, it's a great, one of our great political traditions is telling people to leave us alone was combined during COVID with a very Caribbean historical opposition to communism. So they could describe masks as simultaneously an assault on individual liberty and and also encroaching communism. And both those phrases would make sense within their own political framework. So as that changes, so if you, you know, if you drive across a rural Midwestern state or a rural part of a Midwestern state, you're gonna you're gonna find out that there are a lot more people speaking Spanish in those places than there were 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago, largely because of how big ag has has structured certain things, particularly uh, meatpacking. So if that has changed or if that's changing or whatever, then how you react to that or how you frame political issues is also going to change. You know, I mean, just to give you like kind of a historical perspective on this, if the Midwest were full of the originally Yankee settlers who settled pretty much everything across the top half of the country originally, Donald Trump would not have had the same political problems attracting voters. I certainly, I know this certainly among LCMS pastors that he did because the political culture of the suburban and rural Midwest is heavily determined by German descended people who behave in a really different way and do not like when people are brash. And that's fine. That's just how they are. 
you know, that's okay. So as these things change, I expect to see massive change. So that's why the roadmaps are hard to come by because we are, modern America is something that has never existed before in American history. And it is very hard to find other parallels. So that's, that's why the roadmap is hard to say. And I, you're, I mean, I didn't even think about this when I was answering the question, but you know, relative to modern America, Germany in the 1920s is more homogeneous than like everywhere except Vermont. (laughs) So there's, there's nothing like that here. You know, there's nothing modern Vermont is not like that. There's nothing, there's nothing. I mean, certainly on a racial level. Yes. The divisions, the divisions in a, in a ethnically or racially homogeneous polity usually then become regional and class divisions, which is what a lot of American politics used to be. And so, so that's, that's what they're arguing over in 1920s Germany. We don't really have that hardly anywhere. Or, or if we do, the classes are themselves ethnically or racially diverse. So just the way that people operate is going to be different in such a society as it is in, say, Florida, than in a situation where everyone, you know, every, you're like, oh, his accent is slightly different from mine, you know? <laughs> Those, those, there's, there's no parallel. There's no parallel in that case. So I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, I think it's a really good answer. I'm thinking about, you know, why the roadmap here again, and uh, also then having go through my head your comments about being stuck in the gamer chair and wanting to follow, wanting to believe that um, that my life has a certain kind of predetermined path that that it, it gets to look like random chaos uh it it asks questions or i have to push buttons in a certain order that you know i might fail so i got to go back and learn that again but at the end of the day the game is built for me to beat it and so right if i just figure out the right map then i'll know what to do the next time i play the level right and and that we're maybe importing some of that mindset to the idea that we're supposed to learn from history so we don't repeat it. So if I can just find the right historical story, it will be so much like mine that I won't have to think for myself. I'll just need to, to repeat what they did. Right. And in that way, we're kind of looking for the God mode in the game. We're, we're looking for the way to, to be above the history rather than in the history. And oh, I don't good. know that I've, yeah. I've got a, an answer to this, yeah. but what I think what I want to press on is that learning from history is not really about finding parallel situations so you know what to do next time. Uh, Learning from history is about learning how men stood when they had no other choice. Right. Um, right? It's about, yeah. it's about uh, being inspired by the, the grit of those who survived. Um, and then honestly praying for the grit yourself, especially when you're, you, you know, you take the VR headset off and you realize you've atrophied into the chair. So, yeah. No, that's, that's outstanding because I think, I think this often about people, in theological contexts, but it exists in 
all kinds of other realms of life that what they're really looking for theologically, whether it is through some kind of system or a church, usually some structure of authority, is to be is to enter a state in which they are now free from the perils of life. So I'm gonna be I'm gonna be Lutheran because I don't believe in the papacy and the papacy is bad and but I, I really like history or I'm gonna continue along those lines and I'm gonna become a Latin mass Catholic or I'm gonna I'm going to become after that I'm going to be Eastern Orthodox. This is sort of the track that that Rod Dreyer went a little bit earlier than than many other people. I think he is currently Eastern Orthodox of some kind, having started out as a I didn't know that. Rural, I he was still a Catholic, yeah. Rural small town Methodist. Huh. But that track is a is a flight from perils. So then you're going to enter the safe harbor and then the safe harbor will care for you, whether you're going to call that Mother Church or the Church of the Fathers or whatever you're going to call it. And that happens lots. That happens all the time theologically. And I, and I think it's part of the impulse behind especially the the most adrift fatherless generation that is the most recent rising generation. Their turn toward very conservative versions of whatever it is that they're pursuing but especially liturgical Christianity of various kinds, which is understandable. And I don't, but the idea that you're going to come and then you're just going to be in Harbor, that is what is unrealistic under the sun. And the point of standing or lashing yourself to the mast in order not to, you know, dive to your death at the, the cry of the sirens is because you sometimes won't know what to do because a Christian understanding of history is structured by providence, not really by human action. So there are times when it's completely irrelevant what it is that you want to do because you can't do anything. Now, part of the burden of the show has always been to talk about the things that you can do, that a lot of people are passive precisely in those things in which they should be active. The, the pursuit of wisdom is an active, lifelong pursuit for a Christian. But the idea that, you know, like, you're going to know what to do or, like, if only, you know, you could call Pastor Fisk on the phone right now, like, he would know exactly what to do. I mean, that's – it's it's silly. It's It's not the way that reality is structured. Reality is ordered by, created by, ordered by, and sustained by the living God. And his providences fall to us in ways that we often don't even recognize. I mean, a lot of times he will send us a mercy that that we think is a poison, and then we learn better over time. But the idea that you're just going to be equipped and then set up is is foolish, and it's like living life without God. I mean, you you can try it, but it's fake. <laughs> so you're going to be disappointed and you will be proven to be the fool that you are, right? Because, I mean, it's it's the fool who saith in his heart there is no God because he wants to do whatever he wants to do and he thinks that his doing will determine life and that's just simply not the case. I mean, it, on some level, it didn't matter what Joseph did during, let's say, the two years that he was languishing in jail after having helped the chief 
Baker. I mean, it didn't matter, you know. Eventually, he was going to get out, but that had to do with God, not with Joseph or Pharaoh or any of his courtiers. So the idea that, you know, you're going to have this all figured out, you're not, and you, and you don't even need to. Yeah, the... um I was just reading that today. Uh, the uh, and then I, before you said it, I was thinking about um, a Ahab. I'm gonna get it backwards now that I'm on 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 the spot here. Uh, yeah, Ahab. Excuse me, Ahaz. Uh, and uh, being confronted by by Isaiah and how uh, Ahaz has in his mind, I'm being attacked by these two other kings. They're taking some of my country. But I've sent gold and silver to the the guy who's the bomb on the street, and so you know we're gonna be okay. I've made the play that's wise, right? And Isaiah comes and he says, uh, "Be still, be quiet. You really shouldn't do anything right now. And oh, by the way, the thing you did—that's the thing that's gonna destroy you. Like it wasn't these two other guys. That was never gonna happen." Yeah. But now this guy you just invited into your backyard, yeah. That well, that's gonna that's gonna be a problem. So, you know, <laughs> and and the wisdom out of that was again, be quiet, be still, right? The, no matter what you think your play is, that's the right move. That's gonna stop what God's doing. It's not gonna stop what God's doing. And so, so maybe just believing that God's doing it is is the real the real play. Um, believing that the uh, Brandon Falls situation we find ourselves in here right now uh, is God's doing. Oh, and I it, forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it it is God's doing, and and it will be for the benefit of His holy Christian Church, the elect in history. Uh, it will be for the the baptism of your children uh, into a a faith that can sustain them their whole life long. Um, the sins of the Amorites, uh, God to fill up. And then, and then the hammer is going to come down. And yet again, back to Isaiah, you know, the remnant shall be converted here. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going to move us to another question unless you want to say something about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most people probably need to overcome their latent Arminianism. They really do truly believe that human choice matters a whole lot more than it really does. I'm with that. Monergism rocks. Uh, so <laughs> in episode 119, Hollow writes, uh, we discussed the shifting civil piety and what can be discussed publicly and what is limited to quiet muttering at home. Uh, here's the question from Beth. As Christians who know the truth, when should we speak more openly and when should we keep our heads down for the sake of, say, employment? I had to leave my last employer after 16 years because I could not get an exemption from administering gender transition treatments to kids. Our family has tried the squeeze to squeeze the belt tight, but my husband's nonprofit work didn't bring enough in. I applied for another pediatric nursing job that could give me the hours and still allow me to homeschool my kids. Given my experience and the need for nurses, I thought I would easily get the job. But in my interview, I said that if a child identified as transgender, I could not do anything to encourage him to pursue the identity, and I did not get the job. Our family savings dwindle. I wonder how I should be about what led me to leave my last job. Even if I try to find a job outside of healthcare, I want to be a voice of strength and truth, but it may mean that my family will suffer. How do we as Christians navigate this? Yeah. Yeah, it may mean that okay. my family will suffer. I mean, welcome. Yeah. We love you, Beth, and we're very proud of you. Amen. 
that is awesome that you're doing that because, you know, your kids are going to know that they know that, and they're going to understand it more the older they get. And then they're going to be proud of you too. A lot of things are, are not worth money of any kind. And that would be one of them would be, uh, going along with the mutilation of children for the sake of job security and income security. So we're proud of you. Suffering is in the nature of the beast. It always has been. The cost is getting higher. So one way to look at the future is that inflation is both an economic reality and a spiritual reality for us, that the cost of our discipleship is higher than it used to be. And that's probably a good thing. We will get what we pay for, I suppose, if you want to think about it that way. The more we sow, the more abundantly we reap, if you want to think about it a little bit differently. There is a naivete. I think some people have Christians, conservatives, even who are not particularly Christian, that when they speak up, they will be listened to. I would not suggest that you sacrifice anything on the altar of your naivete. So do not presume that anyone's going to care if you speak up. And I'm not just talking to Beth. I'm not even talking to Beth. She was doing what she was doing out of a conviction that was utterly correct. But there's there's no reason to either look for an opportunity to martyr yourself or actually in some ways worse than that to think that if you speak up, you will be listened to because suddenly everyone will be swept aside by the force of your eloquence or your your passion or your uh, clarity and certainty about what is right and wrong. They won't be. Humans often behave not only in herds, but in particularly cowardly herds. And you shouldn't expect them to change just because you have thought about this enough that you are able to talk about it in ways that that should be winning and should be clear and, and beautiful and moving, but in fact are not for the cowardly herd. Do not sacrifice anything upon the altar of naivete. What you should be willing to sacrifice for or to speak up for is when you are being asked to do what is evil, whether that involves ongoing assent, whether that involves ongoing affirmation of evil or active participation in it of some kind. That's the difference, okay? Is that not everything is yours to fix or can be fixed by you or is just sitting there waiting for you to fix it. But some things are. And when you are prevented from doing what is right or saying what is right, or even more intrusively from thinking what is right, then you have a problem and you have what would be, if you let it happen, completely corrosive. And the thing you have to realize here is that although the pervasiveness of this specific form of temptation or difficulty is spreading, it is not new. So nothing is overtaking you that is not common to man. And that you are dealing with a with a situation where you will be asked to trade something that is now and generally more tangible 
for something that is delayed and generally intangible. So you will be asked to sacrifice money for the sake of the kingdom of God or a certain amount of happiness that you used to have at that job for the sake of the kingdom of God. And the trade-off here is that you always be more comfortable if you are not a disciple of Jesus. So if comfort has been particularly addictive for you or particularly common for you, then it's going to be that much harder. But, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that God will see us through what will be for all of us painful processes of transformation. It always is, but the pain will become more immediate or the attacks will become more frequent and the pain therefore will, I think, seem all the harsher because if maybe the pain used to be sort of like, you know, a dull ache, now it's more like getting, you know, knocked over by a defensive tackle, you know, in a football game. And so it's more immediate, it's more painful, and I don't know how I'm going to get back up, but you will, you will. But that difficulty and that pain that you're feeling right now is more painful for almost all of us than anything that we've done before. One thing to consider along these lines is giving yourself different kinds of cushions. One cushion could be the church's support at such a time and an openness with each other about our lives and our needs that we haven't had to have because we had a certain economic luxury and freedom of operation that meant that we didn't really have to look out for each other. But you might also consider living, I mean, you want to move to Pine Grove, Pennsylvania? Where I grew up is still really cheap, so you could do that. Rockford, Illinois, baby. Yeah, there you go. There, there, there are places that are not expensive to be that are also not the absolute nicest places in the world, but certain forms of life are a little less fragile there, including family life. So that's something for everybody to consider. But Path, we, we love you and we're proud of you. Something, it's a really amazing answer, Adam. Um, something that it, it makes me think of tangentially. So Beth, I don't want you to hear this is, is too too direct to you, but I think it's it's something we are all, those of us who have grown up in the luxury that Dr. Kuntz describes, uh, we're all having to come to terms with a sort of syncretism in which the the mythology of getting to do what I want and think I like it and have it work out so that I'm also comfortably, modestly rich at the end of it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like this is yep. just this yep. is just not Christianity anywhere, anywhere. Right. This you you were not taught <laughs> right. this by the Bible. Right. Um and it's not that the Bible doesn't have prayers for full barns. It does. The prayer's there. You can go find it. It's in the Psalms. Uh, but but it, it does also, more than anything, teach you that uh, a dinner of herbs uh, without contention is far better yeah. than, than a feast uh, filled with discord. And so uh, to try to have all of us detether ourselves from the assumptions that I'm going to I'm going to get to do what I want to do and be paid for it. Uh, and, and that goes for, for your husband as well as yourself. That goes for, for all of us across the board. At some point, uh, 
um, you're the slave in the galley and you're either going to row or you're going to die. And I think the Christian rows. I think he does. I don't think the Christian says, I'm, I'm going to die. I, I don't want to live this life. I think the Christian decides I'm going to row. You know, they're going to kill me hard, but I'm not going easy. And so, you know, what that means for you in your specific scenario, um, I, I can't even guess. Uh, you know, I mean, if I had your skill set and could get a, a medical job, you know, uh, uh, turning into, you know, dental hygiene, you know, I, I don't know. I wouldn't do that myself. I'd just go start working at Walmart or whatever and work my way into management. But um, somewhere where I would, didn't have to have this fight, um, but where I could nonetheless provide uh, because I needed to provide. And I'm not saying that that's even an easy thing for me to actually really face. I haven't had to face it. I'm saying that all of us need to repent of our belief that we'll never have to face it. Because as you are already facing it, you're a, you're a picture to the rest of us of, right. uh, of what they're going to try to do to us. Right. Similar question here uh, from, from Ben. Uh, he says, uh, could you please elaborate on your point that Christians need to get better at asserting ourselves like the Haredim do in New York concerning their schools? Perhaps the Canadian truckers were a good example. It seems like Christians... And conservatives do a lot of, could you imagine if the roles were reversed? Uh, what would it look like for right-wingers in general or confessional Lutherans more specifically to get better at asserting our interests and to do so effectively? How do we move beyond impotent hand-wringing and pearl-clutching? It seems we will need to learn how to do this as we recede into minority status. Yeah, pearl-clutching. Uh, amen to that, Ben. <laughs> yeah, and, and pearl-clutching is... Pro clutching is, as the image itself implies, something that people accustomed to luxury can do. So they grab their pearls and then they grab another cocktail. So everything's basically actually fine. The What he's referencing is the story, the controversy, which has now played out basically the investigation into the Haredim or Hasidim is completely deflected. So total, <laughs> total Haredi victory in this case that we talked about with Jewish schools, Orthodox Jewish schools, ultra-Orthodox Jewish schools in New York and the prospect of state regulation and what that would look like. And it, it's, it's turned into a complete farce and I don't, I don't think they're going to be inspected or shut down or anything like that. The reason being that they long ago mastered, I mean, America didn't really have ultra-Orthodox Jews until after World War II. So these are people that generally came from what would become Warsaw Pact countries to the United States after the Second World War, sometimes in the 1930s, but, but generally after the second world war so they're they're relatively new as populations in the united states and so their dominance in a couple neighborhoods in brooklyn parts of queens some of the places in orange and rockland county new york that they're in and then they're expanding into new jersey as well is a real it's a pretty new thing the distinctive here is that unlike christians not only were they never a majority of anything, but 
they don't really think that their their job is to somehow dictate anything for anyone outside of themselves. And so they they have a perspective. I mean, the the Christian analog to them is maybe the Amish, but the Amish often have aren't they're not that combative or, or oppositional if they don't have to be. I mean, the the Haredi are very very aggressive, and that may not they may not suit everybody. And what I mean by that is, at the slightest sign of anyone thinking that they're not doing absolutely the right thing, they will flip out in the press. I mean, just just go crazy. They do the same thing in Israel. And that is maybe not for everybody. That that's that's not for me. The Amish don't do that, but they do share this similarity with the Amish that I think Christians, if they got to a certain percentage or they they felt themselves sufficiently embattled or whatever it might get to, which is that you basically understand you have to push for yourself and for your own interests because nobody else is going to do it. And part of that naivete that I was talking about earlier is that a lot of people think, a lot of people have an enormous amount of faith in a silent majority on any given issue. You know, so that's a, that's a phrase from the Nixon years. And the thinking there is that as America is beginning to change really rapidly in the late 1960s, Nixon's electoral electoral strategy and and broader cultural strategy will be to appeal to what's called a silent majority, meaning most people are sitting around being like, this is insane. We can't live this way. Well, Nixon was relying on a knowledge of people that we don't generally have, partly because of that homogeneity thing that we referenced earlier, right? So like, and then in the, in the, you know, late 1960s, America's like, Almost everyone is born here because immigration is at tiny levels until this, you know, it's just opened up. And America's like 90% white, 10% black, you know, and the statistical sprinklings of everybody else. That's it. So you kind of know who people are. And Nixon has a general sense that you know, Woodstock is not popular with most of the people looking at it on TV. Okay. He was right. Okay. And a lot of Christians, I think, believe that even in their own churches, you know, and their church bodies, but even perhaps in the general population, people know this or that is crazy, or they know that it's it's bad that you can't pray in public school or something. And I think that they really because of their latent Arminianism, underestimate the nature of the destruction of the soul that the modern American goes through on a daily basis and probably has been going through his whole life. So his sense of what is right and wrong and what is good and bad and what is black and white is completely messed up generally. So appealing to that or relying on that or relying on that, you know, I stood up in church and I said this, you know, in the church meeting. So your your fellow parishioner who never, ever reads the Bible is going to agree with you? Probably not, you know. So what we're dealing with is, I think, a, a situation where we have to understand that we are several steps behind 
the Haredim in Brooklyn or the Amish who began this process of collective discernment about how to survive roughly a hundred years ago. And we have to understand that these things take time and they take energy and consistent investment. Yeah, they so like, will pay. Oh, yeah, go ahead. You go ahead. Go ahead. Finish up. I mean, they they will pay off, but you have to understand that certain things that we need to do, like have collective discernment about what are we going to like, how are we going to support this member who has made this laudable choice in life and doesn't have the funds to cover the income that's now missing from the family? What are we going to do about that? Because currently our answer would be best of luck. So we have to build processes, structures, common senses about how to handle life in a completely new environment. That's what we have to do. And that takes time. But it takes, first of all, the sense that we want to survive collectively. And a lot of us don't have that sense. The reason I know is that I will suggest to somebody that we should start a new church and anywhere, really anywhere. And they're just, they're just, they've never thought of it before, which is, which is like talking to a man and a woman and they've been married for 10 years and they've never tried to have a child and they've never thought about it. And it's like, well, what, what, did, what were you doing? You know, don't like, don't you want to, you want to have a future? Like that would be nice. Right. And they're like, yeah, maybe that would be nice. But a lot of, a lot of people haven't thought about a future in a radically different environment and surviving and thriving in such an environment. So that requires collective discernment and discussion and openness. Those things have to exist internally in order for survival or the ability to you know, close up ranks or defend ourselves that the Haredim displayed in this issue about schools in New York. That comes out of internal processes that allow you to know what it is that you're standing for and then to be utterly united in standing for it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, the collective discernment would require we have a collective and that collective would have to then want to collect something. We would have to be around something. And while I know, I know it's supposed to be word and sacrament. I get it. I know it's supposed to be the confessions. Of, I get it. I get it. But we're not, and we don't. We're certainly not going to all live in the same neighborhood, so we can influence the politics in the neighborhood. It, the difference between us and the Haredim is that they're. You talk about church plant. They're not going anywhere, though. They're not going anywhere. They're going to take over, or they're going to impact by being there together. Right, And so long as our churches are social clubs for upwardly mobile Germanic immigrants that like singing Silent Night on Christmas Eve, and that's it, then we're, we're not going to take any stand about anything. There's, there's not a place where we as collective are going to be louder because you can't even say these things in the parish. You have to be concerned about the person who is the CNN Plus subscriber and whether or not they're going to be offended, right? Um, how are you going to have conversations about about real things? Um, and uh, Dr. Kuntz, your point about, you know, you're going to stand up, you're going to make this elegant speech, but this one individual, I mean, they don't even read the Bible ever, ever. And so, you know, what? how are you going to have a united mind? The Haredim, they, they're not united around word and sacrament, but they're united around dogma. They have it. 
They're, they're going to be holding the line on what they believe to be essential to life and practice. And I, I, I think there are many Lutheran pastors who have given their lives just screaming that we need this. It hasn't happened. Um, can it happen? I, I don't know. Um, but to pretend that we're somehow anywhere near that um, without some kind of repentance in the way we view ourselves, and I think this, the case study of the local family that loses the income is a uh, foretaking a, a theological stand um, is a very good one. Uh, kind of a hard left and maybe a bit crass here uh, comparatively, yep. but one more question. I'm not going to read it all, but yep. if, uh, it's effectively about— um, uh, Brittany Griner and the exchange for, I'm looking for his name and I'm not finding it very quickly. Victor Bout. Victor Bout, Lord of War, uh, and various videos that have surfaced around him describing uh, his time in America, his thoughts about our collapse, our pending collapse, uh, his thoughts about us ceasing to be a Christian nation, um, his thoughts about badly cooked French fries in the prison system. Uh, depends on which video you watch, but uh, of course, Dr. Kuhn, since you are well-informed, you should probably be able to talk about this one too. <laughs> so the exchange is, you know, it tells you what each nation values. The Russians value ex-Soviet operatives such as Victor Bout, who is multilingual and, and very shady in many ways, but seems to have certain coherent thoughts about the nature of American decline. And on the other hand, we value a lesbian WNBA player to say the same thing twice, generally speaking, who has previously refused to salute the American flag during uh, pregame exercises. So that's where we're at. We did refuse, the Trump administration refused to exchange Paul Whelan, the former Marine who is imprisoned in Russia at this time as well. But I mean, so there is a certain significance there. Bout's reflections, if you go find them in an interview on Russia Today with, I think it's Maria Butina, who was herself imprisoned in the United States as a foreign agent, something that doesn't generally happen to the foreign agents of many other countries, but does if you are deemed a foreign agent of Russia. That interview is interesting. And Bout's, Bout's thoughts are especially on rural Americans are very, I think, I think on target that the distinction between your average rural American and your average, you know, Russian is minimal. And that what we're talking about when we're talking about conflict between nations is generally conflict between the elites of nations or the regimes of nations. And but that will be convincing to the percentage of the populace that doesn't have its daily life in common with people of other nations because its daily life is mainly the forms of consumption available in its consumer market. So, you know, in not on my street, but in my neighborhood, I would bet there are more Ukrainian flags than American flags. So... You know, it's kind of like, are you guys all of Ukrainian descent? Like, what is your interest in this? And their interest in this is that they have been told that 
certain people are good and certain people are bad. I, I think most people are living life out of their gamer chairs. Yeah. Whether they're, whether they're gamers or not. Yeah. And so they have to take sides and, and everything is kind of a matter of wearing your $200 authentic jersey to the Christmas party and thereby declaring what it is that you're about or putting a certain number, amount, or kind of stickers on your car. Those are going to vary by consumer market. We have very different stickers that are common in Colorado than what I saw in Indiana. But you got to put the stickers on there so that you have an identity and a life. And people will flee the cage of stickers and $200 jerseys precisely as soon as they realize that there are many other facets to life. I think that the reason that there are commonalities Victor Bout identified between rural Americans and and Russians is because those commonalities of life are commonalities of work and you know animals, hunting, lots of things that are very similar wherever you go in the world, but certainly the parallels between Russia and America, some of which we will be talking about in the new year. They move into Siberia. We move into our West. They have a frontier. We have a frontier. New people settle. It's a completely different place. New people settle. It's a completely different. So there are lots of parallels and those people have essentially no quarrel with each other. How could they? So I think that that is, that is something, especially for people to begin to consider this is something I've said before on the show. I'm willing to say it plenty more times because I want it to sink in for people. I truly believe that they are misused almost precisely at the point where their sense of belonging or patriotism or family is abstracted such that they need to be angry at somebody from Siberia. Is that your your sense of belonging or patriotism is attached precisely to those who are actually yours, your family, where you're from, where you grew up, if that's a different place, whatever the case might be. That's that's what you need to defend. You don't need to defend the media's conception of who is threatening, you know, mud democracy this week, because that's going to vary according to the media's needs and according to the interested parties who are operating in, with, under, or through the media. So you don't need to worry about that. The Victor Bout interview is Russia's own version of uh, (laughs) media manipulation in its own way in fairly understandable English. But the points, some of the points he makes, especially about America, are very much fair ones. I think that that leads me, you know, Maybe back to a dark, dark comma, Brandon, not a hashtag dark Brandon place, is that we are entering into a time much like the time that Bout lived through when he was a young man. Part of the reason that he became an arms dealer was because he had all kinds of expertise and contacts in far-flung places that could be supplied with weapons. And he had been there on his government's dime when his government was much more coherent and sent people all over the world as military advisors, when their capacities became vastly more restricted, not all their boys went home. They couldn't, they didn't want to, whatever. And Bao was one of them. So, I mean, he was arrested in Thailand 
uh, and then extradited to the United States to face criminal charges in the U.S. And the reason he was was because he was operating in Thailand and, you know, through the U.S. And a lot of what he did, especially in the 90s, was in Africa. So there will be many such new strange adventures as we enter a a dark comma Brandon time. <laughs> because there's a combination much like the the ailing Soviet Union or the you know that that weird time like in the 92 Olympics where Russia didn't even really have a name it was like the CIS countries for the sort of federation they still vaguely had at the point at that point that 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 strange time and those strange adventures are i think largely ahead of us because we are in a decaying leftist capitalist state not a leftist communist state so we'll be able to talk about it more we're talking about it right now but i think it's i think a lot of those things and i think our equivalents of victor bout as well as many other things if there are going to be such parallels are still ahead of us you're listening to brief history of power you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here the hebron collegium is a gap year bible school for men in rockford illinois semi-monastic boot camp for christian living Cowards and slackers need not apply. Hebronclegian.com. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. 
If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.